Well, C.S. Lewis is uh, really one of my favorite authors. I have re read, I think, almost everything he's written, and maybe a few things I've missed. And I uh, and I read them over and over again because they're just full of life and wisdom. I just enjoy it so much. And he had a, an illustration that uh, has helped me uh, uh, maybe have a, in having the right outlook on life. And his illustration says you can think of life as kind of a hotel or as a prison, right? And he says if you think of life as a hotel then, um, well, it leaves a lot to be desired, right? I mean, there's an awful lot that could be improved upon. But if you were to think of life as a present, then, well, maybe it's not so bad after all. There's an awful lot of good that comes our way. And I like that illustration, and it's helped me as I've made my way through life, you know, helps to keep my focus in the right place and, and my attitude right. But I want to change it a little bit this morning, and I'm going to kind of use it, and I'm going to say, you can think of life as a vacation, or you can think of life as a kind of boot camp or even a war. And once again, if it's a vacation, then... It's not much of one, right? You need to contact your travel agent, find somebody else, you know, because this isn't going to get it. But if it's really a boot camp or if it's preparation for a war, then maybe it's not so bad because an awful lot of good things come our way in this life. And the reality is, is that we are in a spiritual war. We are either in training or in battle as Christians. We are in one or the other. Now, the truth is most of our battles are what I would call maybe skirmishes. They're, they're more personal in nature. And, and no one really knows that uh, we're fighting those unless we tell them. So we fight them quietly by ourselves or maybe with a few friends. But sometimes... Sometimes war breaks out, and everyone knows, and everyone is involved, and, and, uh, and that's happening in our world today and other places uh, across the globe. Um, I, I've mentioned this before, uh, but it, it really is. In other places, there are people every day who are dying for their faith simply because they're Christians. Now, there's been a front established in our nation, and I'm not going to go into any details. I have mentioned this often in, uh, in messages about the things that are happening. I mentioned one just a, kind of a, uh, it's a new one. There's a Navy chaplain by the name, a, uh, name of moderate lieutenant commander, and uh, he was recently told to clear out his office. He wasn't permitted to go to a memorial service for a slain serviceman because in conversation and counseling, he told someone that the biblical definition of marriage is between one man and one woman. And so we are beginning to see those kinds of things in our country. It's not what it could be, but we don't know where it will lead yet. So for the believer, life is not a vacation. It's a spiritual war. And knowing that, if we realize that, it can help us. It can help us to see our uh, life as it really is. And we can live it sensibly. We can enjoy those things that come our way uh, when they come across the, uh, When we come across them, we can realize we're not entitled to them, but we can enjoy them. And we can fight the skirmishes that we're in. And we can get ready for the battle should the battle come our way. And the world really is divided into two camps. It's uh, divided into two camps, one of which is the believers, and that's 
most of us in this room. Now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if I'm saying that, you're not even sure what I mean by that, then I want you to know that I'm available to talk to you after service. And it's not just me, but any one of the elders or deacons, or you might know someone who's a genuine follower of Christ. And if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we can take this book, the Bible, and show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven and how you can know you have eternal life. Most of us in this room already have done that. We've understood our need for forgiveness, and we have come to God, and we have found that forgiveness. And, and so that's one group of people. That's one camp of people in the world. The other one are those that we call outside of the faith. And, and again, we don't want anybody to remain outside the faith. We would do anything we can to bring you to Christ. But those are the two camps. And uh, we're in the process as believers of trying to rescue as many of those outside as we can. At least we ought to be in that process. And last week, if you'll remember, when we were together, we talked about this white horse that was sent out. And, and that white horse was one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But it was different than the other horses. Um, the other three horses always uh, represented or brought calamity with them. But this one is different. Um, this one is white, and, and, and that white is always a symbol of Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody agrees with that. Some people think that that one also is a, a picture of calamity. It's a, someone going out to conquer, but if so, then it's redundant, and it doesn't really take into account the symbolism of the white. And, and not everything in those seals, when they're opened, are bad. And one of them that we're going to look at today is not, and that's the fifth seal, the, the seal of the martyrs. And uh, so we looked at those seals, and, and if you remember, those seals are how believers will see the end times. And that white horse really was a representation of the gospel going out into all the world. And the truth is that that horse is advancing in our world today. Now, in the end times, there's this kind of special effort that's going to happen. Uh, the, 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 in that time, we've said that things look like they're going to get worse and worse and worse, right? And you often hear that teaching about the last times, that things are going to get worse and worse. But I think it's possible that things will also get better and better and better. So the people who are in charge and in power in our world will, well, things will just go downhill and they'll persecute believers. But the, the gospel is going to go out and it's going to go out in a powerful way. And we'll see more and more people coming to Christ. And, and, and yet that's already happening in our world. That white horse is already advancing. And we're trying to rescue as many people as we can to get them out of that camp of the outside and into the camp of the believer. Now, of course, try as we might, many people still refuse and they choose to remain on the outside. But we continue to try. We continue to try to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we've been making our way through the book of Revelation, and again, last week we looked at the seals. Uh, we began there, and we saw the four horsemen, which are the four, first four seals, and the seventh seal we're going to look at together with the seventh trumpet and the seventh bone. That'll happen later on. Tonight, today, we're going to look at uh, the fifth and sixth seals together. And, and again, I want to remind you, I think the way to think about the seals, it's, it's the way the believer will see the end time events as they unfold. And so, it's a reminder from last time, even if the rapture occurs, there will still be those who will put their faith in Christ and will be believers during that time. And so the seals are, are the way that believers will see those end time events. And, and yet, as those seals have been opened in the book, we've got this kind of a sneak preview of what's going to happen. And, um, and it's a hint of what's to come. It's also foreshadowed in our history, in it, but it's leading up into those days. And when those seals are finally open, the people that are living there will have a fuller understanding of just what they meant. Uh, it's kind of like that, that deepening of knowledge that you have as you read the scriptures and study it. You've seen something, you understand it, but one day you say, oh yeah, there's more to it than that. Well, that's what's going to happen when those seals are finally open in the last day. We've got a peak, we, we kind of understand, we've got a glimpse, but when they're open, that full truth will come home to those people. So we are, as I said, in the book of Revelation. I want you to join me, please. And we're in uh, the sixth chapter again. And we're going to be looking at, uh, at uh, both uh, the fifth and the sixth seal today. And we're going to begin with that fifth seal, which really represents the camp of God's people, and we find that in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 6, and of course it's up on the screen on this, uh, either side of me. So this is what we read there. When he, meaning Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained. So we really could call this the seal of the martyrs. These people, the men and women and children, are people who died for their faith. And the text tells us that they were slain because of their faith. They stood firm on the word of God and they maintained their testimony. Never did they deny Jesus. They claimed him all the way until the end. And so this is the battle, this war that is raging and it's raging in other parts of our world today. And, um, and again, I've mentioned enough enough not to go into detail, but you hear it on the news all the time, don't you? I mean, you certainly don't hear it all, far from it. If you're connected to Christian news sources, you hear things that most people out there don't hear about. But we hear enough to know what's happening in our world. So a couple of weeks ago, 21 Christians were beheaded for their faith. And as they were there, before the act happened, every one of them said, Jesus, help me. And down through the centuries, from the time of the first disciples, this kind of thing has been happening. And, and all of the disciples, with the exception of John, were martyred. They were put to death for their faith. And you know, tradition tells us that they actually did try to kill John, but they weren't successful. 
All the rest of them died for their faith. And, and none of us here knows. We don't know if we might. We don't know when. If we do, we don't know how we might have to die for the faith. A terrorist could attack us, even here in this country. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that. I know it goes back a ways, but the shooting in Columbine, those two kids who did the shooting asked that girl, do you believe in Jesus? And she said yes, and they killed her. We don't know when or where or how or if we might have to face that. Now the truth is, not all Christians are martyred. I mean, I've already mentioned John, and, and the truth is probably, down through the centuries, most have not been. Although the 20th century, you know, that century we just kind of got out of, what, 14 or 15 years ago, depending on how you calculate the end of the century. That 20th century, more people died for the Christian faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined. And this 21st century is on track to beat that. And this group that we look at here in Revelation and the fifth seal really represents all believers. You see, we ought to be willing to die. I mean, we're all called to that. Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And taking up your cross simply means you're willing to walk to your death. And you will follow Jesus anywhere. So these martyrs here in the fifth seal really represent all believers. And, and, and as such, it really shows us the end. What it's going to be like for us when everything is said and done. And so this next verse that we're going to read, sometimes it takes people by surprise or, or bewilders them because they think this doesn't seem to be very Christian. And so let's read it and try to understand it. In verse 10 it says, these martyrs, these people had maintained the faith and died for it. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. You know, some people think that that's not what Jesus did when he was on the cross. And it's true. It's not what Jesus did when he was on the cross. That's not what Jesus, I mean, Stephen did when he was being stoned. You see, they asked for forgiveness for those who were putting them to death. And, um, and, and they, they were seeking good for those people who are putting them together. And yet, these people here are seemingly crying out for vengeance. And you know, most of us know that we could not do this ourselves. If, if we did it, we know that we would be in sin because we, we, we don't have that heart that we could do it yet. And, and, and you'd be right if you think that. I mean, I mean, for us to do what they're doing here is to fail. For us to do what they're doing here really is to sin. But having said that, I want you to remember that um, Jesus is going to return one day. And when he does, he's going to execute judgment. 
And many people, myself included, believe that Stephen is right here with this group of martyrs that are under the altar. You see, on this side of the cross, we can't do this. It's simply too dangerous for us. But on the other side, once we have gone through death, on the other side, we have left behind sin. In fact, we cannot sin anymore. And so these people here, they're not sinning by what they're doing. In fact, they know that God is the judge and he has to judge the wicked because he is holy and true. And because he's holy and because he's true, he is going to judge the unrepentant wicked. He's sovereign. And that means he is, it's his job to judge. It's his job to avenge his people. And the day will come for all of us. When we will leave sin behind completely, when we cannot sin anymore, and when that day comes, we're going to long for justice just as these people did. It's built into us. How many times you watch some movie where the bad guy gets it in the end, and you say, yeah, he deserved it. In our state right now, because we're sinful, there's a twist in that. But it's because we're sinful. That desire for justice is built into us, and it's part of who God is, and he will bring about judgment and justice one day. I have to tell you something. There is a, a misunderstanding among Christians about what justice is. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Justice and mercy are not in competition. Justice is expressed in one of two ways. Either it is judgment upon the unrepentant sinner, or it's shown as mercy on the repentant sinner. Both of those things are justice. And God will be just. He will condemn the unrepentant sinner. Now, verse 11 of this passage kind of closes out this picture for us. We're only going to look at a part of it right now, and then we're going to come back to the rest of it in a little bit later. Uh, but but it, it'll help kind of close it out and show us where we're going. We're, we're right now in a state where we could not ask for that kind of thing, where we need to be praying for the forgiveness of others. But there's going to come when we leave this life behind, where we can't sin anymore, where that sense of desire for justice will be free and full and right. But then there's also what we read here in verse 11. And so, uh, so we read this. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer. See, that white robe is symbolic of their righteousness. They, they put their trust in Christ, and he had made them righteous. And this is recognition of that fact. Now, in our culture, if someone had done what these people would do, we, we would give them the Medal of Honor, right? <laughs> That's how we might, might uh, recognize them. But here, they have something even better, these white robes that declare their righteousness, and they're told to wait. And that word there in the Greek means to wait, but it also means something else. It also means to rest. And they're told to rest wait, rest, until the end comes. All of their labors are behind them. It, it, it's all done. And when that seal was open, 
John sees the souls of those martyrs underneath the altar. They are no longer on the altar. Their labors have finished. They've completed the course and they kept the faith. And so now they're resting and they're looking forward to all that is yet to come. Now, again, we're, we're going to look at the rest of verse uh, 11 shortly, but for now, I want to look at the other camp, and those are those who are on the outside. And that begins in verse 12, and so we read this. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. Uh, you see, this is the opening of the seal that, in a sense, has this air of expectation about it, because John watched. I mean, that's not said about any other seal except the very first one. There's this expectation of, of what is coming. He's watching the seventh seal. And, and verse 12, and what follows it, kind of answers the question that was asked in verse 10. How long until you judge? Now what this says, it doesn't tell us when, but it tells us that it's going to happen. It's sure that it will happen. And what follows tells us what it will be like for those on the outside. And that's what we see are, are things which will happen in the natural realm. And so in the middle of verse 12 and following, we read, There was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. These events here are really happening at the end of the tribulation period. It is, after all, the sixth seal. These things happen just before the return of Jesus Christ. And every one of these things here that are listed are cataclysmic events. Earthquake, sun goes dark, the moon is affected, the stars fall, the sky recedes, the mountains and the islands are in upheaval. And, and both the heavens and the earth are affected by what, ha what happens there. And all of that, to anyone, to everyone, to unbelievers and believers alike, every one of those things point to the end of all things. Now, I, I don't know how we would feel. I can imagine what it would be like if you and I were standing there, if we were there when these things began to happen. I, I, I think if we were there and we were watching, we'd likely be afraid. I, I mean, everything is so big that's happening. They're so powerful. And it would be happening all around us and affecting everything that there was. Everything. There would be no safe haven. But I think if you and I were there, because we know Jesus Christ, there'd also be a thrill in our heart and our soul, wouldn't there? I mean, we know Christ's words, don't we? When you see these things begin to happen, look up for your redemption draws near. We know that whatever else happens, soon we'd be with Jesus. So we might be scared on the one hand and absolutely thrilled on the other. But that's not how those on the outside are going to feel. And those who remain on the outside, that's not how they're going to react. In verse 12 through 14, well, they tell us the physical upheaval of the universe. And 15 and following tells us the upheaval in the hearts and souls of the lost. Tells us the abject 
terror of those on the outside. And so in verse 15 we read, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And I can tell you, for those that aren't near mountains or caves, they will try to find some other dark, hidden place to go to. When I was a, a young kid, a couple of blocks from my house, there was this great big storm drain, you know, and it was big enough that you could walk in it as a kid, you know, and we would go there and investigate it, you know, and my parents, when they found out about how to fit, but that's the kind of thing that people are going to seek if they're going to try to find a place where they can hide from God. You see, Christ is coming, and they know he's coming, and they try to hide, just as Adam and Eve began their life and said, trying to hide from God. So their children who refuse to come to God will finish their story trying to hide from God. And, and it didn't work for Adam and Eve, and it will not work for them. Verse 15 describes in a symbolic way their, their effort to hide from God. And verse 16 tells us their fear. And we read there, they call to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The fear is so intense that they would be, prefer being crushed under the weight of a mountain than to face the living God. Gone are all of their excuses. Gone is the bravado. All that's left to them is the naked truth. They know how they've lived. They know what they deserve. They know what's coming and they cannot face it. They're undone. They're unmanned. They have ascended to this high precipice of terror from which they will never come down. And the very lamb who died to save them, the very one that they have rejected over and over and over again is the one who will bring judgment upon their head. John summarizes his truth in verse 17. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You could call this the seal of God's wrath. For those who put our faith in Christ, we will never experience the wrath of God. Jesus took God's wrath that was for us upon himself. He took it for us. For those on the outside, the Bible tells us in Romans that they have been storing up wrath for this very day and they will not be able to withstand it. When you read those words, when you hear those words read, can you imagine the absolute terror that those people must be feeling? Can, can you picture in your mind someone that you know and someone you love finding themselves in that place? I, I can. I can picture someone I know, someone I love, who doesn't know Christ. I can picture them on that day when that sky recedes, looking for a hole in the ground to climb into. You know, even for your worst enemy, you don't want that for them. It's absolutely terrifying. And yet that's what's going to come to those 
on the outside. Now, there's one more thing I want you to note about this camp of people. And first is, it's the unbeliever that are in that camp, and they're made up of all sorts of people. And so this passage really is inclusive. It ranges from kings through generals all the way to everyone else. It mentions slave and free. And again, it's a spectrum. Everyone is included that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And so the verse begins as it does, and it enumerates categories of influential people, right? So kings, of course, are at the top of the list, followed immediately by their children, the princes, or possibly those are the vassal kings that rule underneath them. And then generals uh, would be the next most powerful group, uh, followed by the rich. And you know, the rich are those that, that have the power. They do it because they have the money to, to make things happen. And, and then the powerful, that's the last category. And they'd be those who, who, for one reason or another, have influence in the world, but they lack the means to back it up, uh, if we can put it that way. Maybe they don't have enough money or, or they're not in the right place. So, so in that day, it would have been like the philosophers and, and the uh, poets and the playwrights and maybe even the top gladiators would fit in that category. They are really the same kind of people in our day if we were to substitute sports figures for gladiators. See, that this list is it's broad and it catches everybody and I and I think I think it's given in this way to show that all of their money and all of their influence and all of their power and everything they have going for them is not going to be worth anything on that day. And at the end of that list of all those influential people, it says, and everyone else. See, in other words, it's not just the influential who are going to fall under judgment, but everyone will, everyone who has not put their faith in God. And many people feel like, well, I've not had any power, I haven't had any influence, influence so, so I'm not really going to be responsible for anything, and yet they'll find that they're in the same group. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The punishment may not be as great, but it will be shown there. And so there's no confusion, slave and free, it's a catch-all category. Again, free, slave, it doesn't matter. If you don't know Christ, you will be in that group of people. Two camps in our world. All well fits in one of those two camps. Those who put their faith in Christ and are willing to follow him, even if it means death, and those who all their lives have run from God. And one group will know glory and the other, well, it will experience the loss of everything that's good. But that, that's the end. And we're not there yet. See, those on the inside who put their faith in Christ, we're trying to rescue as many people as we can from that other camp. The white horse will run in the last days, but he is advancing in our day, which really brings us back to the end of verse 11. And so I want to read that whole verse this time. It says, Then each of them was given a white robe. These are the martyrs, those who have died for their faith. Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until... The full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just 
as they had been. Being killed just as they had been means they had died and dying for their faith. And when Jesus opens that fifth seal, there are already martyrs there, but more were coming. And those who die for their faith don't die because Jesus somehow has lost control, because Jesus has been sleeping or hasn't been paying attention. They don't die because Satan is too powerful for Jesus to restrain. They go to their deaths just as Jesus did as a part of God's plan. And that full number of those who die for the faith doesn't mean some particular numerical value. It means when martyrdom itself has run its course. That is, when there is no longer any need for it. You know, there's an old saying that has echoed through the halls of the church down through the ages, and that is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. People come to faith because of the testimony of those who are willing to die for Jesus Christ. You remember last week we mentioned that exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees during the last week of his life in Matthew. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, because you need them, therefore I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Their only hope of escaping what we read in verses 15 and following is if believers are willing to face anything to take the word of God and the testimony of Jesus to them. The full number has not yet come in. You know, we don't know what we're going to face. We don't know what our end will be. Uh, we... Um, know that those who don't know Christ, we know what they face. And it's awful. And there is yet time to get the message out. Listen again to the words in Joel. Multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. And then what will they do? lost and without hope. But we're not here yet. That's the good news. We're not there yet. There's still a chance. Still, the white horse advances and God has opened a door for us. Do you see it? Do you see it? Will you walk through it? The clock is ticking. The end is coming. Today is a day of salvation. And we have the message of life. 
multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you um, for the challenge of your word. Father, if we take just a little bit of time and think about those awful consequences, it ought to move our hearts. Lord, there's not a whole lot of hellfire and brimstone preaching done in our day, and I think probably for good reason. But we don't ever want to lose sight of how awful it is for those who are on the outside. And Lord, help us. Help us to take up our cross and follow you no matter where that might lead. Help us, Lord, to take that message to the multitudes that are in that valley of decision. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, I, I just want to say that, you know, today's Palm Sunday. <laughs> and you might think, well, what is this 